I'm somebody now, Harry. Everybody likes me. Soon millions of people will see me and they'll all like me. I'll tell them about you and your father, how good he was to us. Remember? It's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to lose weight, to fit into the red dress. It's a reason to smile. It makes tomorrow all right. What if I got Harry, hmm? Why should I even make the bed or wash the dishes? I do them, but why should I? I'm alone. Your father's gone. You're gone. I got no one to care for. What have I got, Harry? I'm lonely. I'm old. You got friends, Ma. The greatest movie of all time are your friends. This week on the show, Requiem for a Dream. The greatest movie podcast is the greatest movie podcast is the greatest movie podcast is the greatest movie. Come on and hear me now. Greatest movie podcast is the greatest movie podcast is the greatest movie podcast is the greatest movie. Come on and hear me now. Welcome to the greatest movie of all time podcast. I am your play-by-play co-host, the Big Deck Boski. And I'm Gia Smith. All right. We need a nickname for you. At some point, we'll have a nickname for you. <laughs> it's so generic. Uh, this week we have a, his wife. <laughs> yeah. This week we have a new guest with us, a guest that was highly recommended by someone who has been a guest on the show four times. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. He did the Lord of the Rings trilogy with us and the remake of Dune, Mr. Joe Boynton, and he recommended Mike Monzetta. How you doing, Mike? Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan. Happy to be here. What a wow. doozy of a movie I'm coming in on. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you, you, you chose a handful of movies, and I was like, we got to do this one first because it's really different than everything we've done so far on the show. Um, so I'm really excited to do it. And uh, we are going to watch every single movie ever made and decide which movie is the greatest of all time. Like we said before, uh, today we are talking about Requiem for a Dream. But before we get to that, last week we discussed The Wolf of Wall Street with my cousin Anthony Wozniak. We hope you enjoyed that one. So please check that episode out in any episode in, in our catalog. We are on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever app you want to use. Please subscribe and review if you can. It's very helpful for the show. Let us know what you think on social media. Start an argument with us. Agree with us. Give us suggestions. Come find me and punch me in the neck. Whatever tickles your pickle. Uh, you can find us at the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast on Facebook, Greatest Movie Pod on Instagram, uh, at Movie, I'm sorry, at Great Movie Cast on Twitter. And you can always send us an email at greatestmoviepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Please tell your friends about us. And as our good, coked up business fr- businessman friend always says to us, Ash to ash. And that is likely the only slightly humorous line in this movie. (laughs) Requiem for a Dream is a 2000 unrated drama directed by Darren Aronofsky. The budget was $4.5 million and made roughly $7.4 million worldwide. It stars Ellen Burstyn as Sarah Goldfarb, Jared Leto as Harry Goldfarb, Jennifer Connelly as Marion Silver, and Marlon Wayans as Tyrone Love. It has an 8.3 on IMDb a 68 on Metacritic and on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has a 78% on the tomato meter and the audience score is 93%. Not too shabby. Let's look at some reviews and I did have them up. I know they're not here. Let's see. I just want to add before we look at some interviews, uh, before we look at some reviews, yeah. number 84, number 84 on IMDb's greatest movies of all time. 
Damn. Uh, that's, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because when I was looking at like just regular user reviews on IMDb, well, the first one that I saw and it made me laugh was he was like, this movie is a 10 out of 10, but I absolutely hated every fucking minute of it. <laughs> well said. And it's, it's really like how, I mean, how often can you really say that about a movie? It, it, it's, it's bizarre. It's, it's definitely one of those movies where like once you've seen it, like it's not like you're in an urge to watch it again real soon. Like, oh, I got to show all my friends how, you know what I mean? Like it definitely it's impactful for sure. Um, but it's just it's just so heart wrenching the whole time that like by the end of it, you just feel uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll definitely get into it. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I do have two reviews here. I have a, a positive one and a, a negative one. From Candace Frederick, she says, at times disturbing and always intense, this flick offers its own acid trip for viewers and is a firsthand look at four people who become trapped by their own hell. And the negative one is from Matt Noller of Slant Magazine, a gut-wrenching, formally adventurous masterpiece or an ugly, flashy piece of empty-headed propaganda. So uh, it, it could go either way. I think there's a lot of people who dislike this movie, but there's a lot of people who appreciate its art um, in the direction that Darren Aronofsky was going for. Um, but we do have a new segment on the show called Rick's Report. And Rick Barrasso is our former uh, co-host. And I text him and I say, give me one sentence or two sentences about this movie that I can read in the show. <laughs> and so Rick says, and I quote, a great and effective movie, despite Jared Leto having the most punchable face in Hollywood. <laughs> well, don't worry, Rick. I think Edward Norton took care of that for you in Fight Club. Um, so this is a segment now. Uh, this is the part where I always sweat. This is the 30-second summary. Gia, if you don't mind, put 30 seconds on the clock, and I'm going to stumble through <laughs> the, the plot of this movie. All right. And in three, two, one, go. Uh, deals with a, a a mom and a son, and and they're involved. The son's involved in heavy drugs, and has a friend who's involved in heavy drugs. And his girlfriend's involved in heavy drugs, and the mom uh, likes this TV show a lot, and she wants to fit into a dress so she can be on the show and have a lot of fun. And everybody just goes crazy and downhill, and it's really depressing. Oh, Nineteen <laughs> seconds, not too I, bad. I, I mean, what else can you say, really? I mean, I mean, there's a this obviously goes a lot deeper, but it, that's yeah. that's the uh, the rough the rough draft there. But Mike, do you remember seeing this movie for the first time? I do, man. It's 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 funny you say that. This was a really great time in my life. I remember when this movie came out. I had just uh, I graduated college that year, and I just moved out and on my own. I just got my own apartment, and I, I kind of grew up in a small town in in South Carolina, but. After I graduated, I moved to Charlotte. So here I am, like, like maybe a month living alone, all alone in the big city. And just everything I did felt just a little more adult. It just felt a little more grown up. And so uh, all, all my life, I was always huge into movies. When I was in college, I wanted to be a screenwriter. But after I graduated, I wanted to be more of an actor, more in front of the camera. So, so uh, I always kind of followed movies. And I had seen Pi a few years earlier which absolutely blew my mind. If you don't know, uh, if you're listening, you know, Pi was the first movie by the director of Re Requiem for a Dream. And mm -hmm. Pi was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I read a little bit about Re Requiem for a Dream uh, in Entertainment Weekly, but I didn't quite know what it was all about. And uh, so, so here I was, I just graduated. I had my real adult job. It was like a Thursday night and we have this independent movie theater in Charlotte. So I drove up there like on my own by myself. And I remember it was the first movie theater that you could, that I'd ever been to that you could order a coffee at. And I was like, man, this is some grown up ass shit. <laughs> That's fancy right so there. I, I ordered a coffee. 
and I went in to see Re Requiem for a Dream, only knowing that it was by, only knowing that it was by the guy who uh, directed Pi, but not knowing anything else about it. And just from that opening music riff, I, I knew I was in for something special. And uh, and about ten or fifteen minutes in, I was like, "Holy shit, this is the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen." And by the end of it, I, I just couldn't get up. I couldn't get up. I just had. I'm not a sit through the credits guy, but when the credits started rolling, I just had to sit there for a second and just think about uh, what I just seen and, and take it all in. Hmm. Let me ask you. So, so, so you saw this movie when it came out, like in the, in the theaters. Think, yeah, I saw it in the theater. Absolutely. So that's awesome. Because the, the one thing that when you explain this, it kind of reminded me of, I forget who it was. I think it was Joe Rogan uh, who mentioned this once. He was saying how he saw Pulp, Pulp Fiction for the first time at the theaters and it blew, it blew his mind. He thought it was like the biggest change that he had known in his lifetime with movies like this was the start of something different um did you think that with with this movie as well was this like something completely different you've never seen before no no i think pie kind of was but i didn't have that joe rogan like epiphany that he had uh, at pulp fiction and i think that's a very accurate assessment of pulp fiction i think pulp fiction was an absolute game changer i don't think uh requiem for a dream i, I didn't believe it was going to change the landscape of film as i knew it but it, within the boundaries of the type of film it was, I had never seen a film uh, of that of that type. Mm. Right, it was and, interesting yeah. because it, it was it was interesting because um, I, I feel like Requiem for a Dream and Train Spotting are a fantastic double bill. I think they're mm -hmm. uh, they're great. Uh, I mean, you don't want to put yourself through that trauma, but <laughs> the, my my first initial takeaway I, I saw the movie the first time in the theater, and then I saw it again maybe five years later, and then I saw it for the third time just last night. And it's so funny seeing it, uh, it within a 20 year time span. The first time I saw it, this is gonna sound really odd, but I don't know if it was because the film was so well made or the actors were so charismatic, but I, I don't wanna say aspirational because that's definitely not what I took away from it, but I didn't think it was a deterrent. Everybody was telling me how, man, this movie was, was terrifying and I'll never do drugs and I'll never drink again after seeing Requiem for a Dream. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't get that. I, I don't know if it was because of the sensational film style or, or, or what, but I, I, I thought it was just a cool, it did. I, it didn't glorify drugs in any sense, but I thought the movie was just cool. And I didn't think it was a deterrent. Whereas when I saw it last night, I thought, Oh my God, this is terrifying. This is horrible. Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. And if anything, it, it, I don't know if this is a word, but it deglorifies drugs. <laughs> Um, in, yeah. in a way, I mean, like, I, I mean, watching this movie, I don't want my arm to be cut off. You know what I mean? So like, you know, it, it's kind of the opposite in a way, but I could see why some people would be like, it's, it's the whole movie is a big, like dream sequence. Almost. It's the way it's shot. It's so dreamlike and, and interesting that maybe it could, uh, you know, influence people to, to do drugs, but I, I don't, th I don't think so. I, I really don't like, I'm the same way I watched it and I, I wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to go do drugs now. I mean, that, that's not what it is. Well, yeah, I it's think funny. There's all uh, True. Yeah. True story. So I was going to, I was in the grocery store earlier and I was going to grab a beer for tonight's show. And I actually was like, you know what, I'm going to put that down. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it had that profound of effect watching it last night that I think I've drank my last beer. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Gee, wow. Gee, do you remember no. seeing this for the first time? Um, I, I remember it's definitely been a few years for the, this was the second time viewing it. Uh, but I remember the first time it was similar to how you had, uh, introduced a clockwork orange to me, uh, <laughs> by saying like, this movie's going to fuck you up. And I was just <laughs> like, okay, here we go. Um, a clockwork orange did not fuck me up. If any, I mean, yes, it did because I enjoyed it too much. That was the problem. Yeah. That's fucked but up. Requiem agreed. 
but with Requiem, like, yeah, just like that guy had mentioned uh, in his viewing, it's a 10 out of 10, but like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if I'd want to put myself through that again. But um, another thing I wanted to just add on to that was that, you know, I don't, it's not obviously just about, you know, I feel like it's about vices. It's about, yes, it's about addiction, but isn't, it isn't specifically to drugs. You know what I mean? Like uh, I definitely resonated with like Ellen Burstyn's character of like, you know, wanting to lose weight and like by any means necessary and like just avoiding eating. And then all of a sudden her refrigerator becomes almost like a demon to her. Yep. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a combination of things, even like the guy who, you know, like he, he has a thing for pussy, like, you know, like that's his thing. So like everyone's got a, everyone's got a vice. Every, everyone's got advice actually yeah. i i just I'm, I'm addicted to top chef right now as you know gia i've been watching it nonstop. <laughs> and one of the challenges they had them do was it was like cook a meal that's your that's your vice mm. and some of the people doing it didn't understand it they were like oh i uh, i don't my my vice is depression and they're like that's not really a vice um no. but anyways i the first time i saw this i remember i, I did my uh typical every month I would uh, go to Newbury Comics with my paycheck and I would buy like 10 DVDs <laughs> and uh, go home and watch in my room. And Requiem, I think the first time I saw it, I just didn't expect that at all. Uh, I, went, I went into it and when, I, when it was over, I, I remember going to the bathroom and just looking in the mirror at myself for like five minutes and being like, <laughs> I think I might hang myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I remember my dad was like, he came upstairs and he was like, hey, you in there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what's the matter? I'm like, I don't know right now. I don't know what's the matter. <laughs> it's a real existential experience that you have to sit with for a while. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, but let's get to our top three favorite scenes. Uh, Mike, you're, you're our guest. Let's, let's do your uh, third favorite scene of the movie. Absolutely. Before I go, though, I just want to say, man, the first time on, I was like, well, I don't know what I can say, what I can't say. Can I swear? Can I not swear? You can, absolutely you can fucking say any fucking thing you want. Well, yeah. you came right out of the gate with ass to ass. And I was like, oh, <laughs> let's, go. let's go. Let's do it. Yep. I, I, I mark every episode as explicit so people know what they're getting into. <laughs> we got that E tag on iTunes. Yep. Yep. My third favorite scene is just a little scene at the beginning of the movie. That's kind of a throwaway, but it really lets you know what you're getting into. It's a scene where uh, we first meet Sarah Goldfarb and she first uh, she tries to get the red dress on and she can't. And so she realizes that she has to go on a diet. So my third favorite scene is Sarah Goldfarb sitting at the Sarah Goldfarb, by the way, Ellen Bernstein's character, uh, Oscar nominee for best actress that year. She's sitting at her breakfast table and you kind of see a close up of the page of the diet book that shows what her breakfast is. And it's like uh, one grapefruit one hard boiled egg and one black coffee. And then it cuts to the table and you can see a grapefruit and an egg and a cup of black coffee. And it cuts back to Sarah and she's like, oh, okay. And then you hear like a, you hear a chomp and then it cuts back to the table and the grapefruit's gone. And then you hear a, and the coffee's gone. And then you hear like a, and the egg's gone. And all the while this is happening, there's like this clock ticking, just tick, 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 tick. Mm -hmm. And she looks back up and it's been like a minute and that's all the food she can eat. She's a huge food lover. And that's all the food that she can eat for the rest of the, for the rest of the afternoon. And just, I've never seen that in a movie, just that the, 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 the food just kind of disappearing, the sound effect, and then the food disappearing, and then sound effect, food disappearing. I, that, as soon as I saw that, I knew whatever lied ahead was going to be something outside of anything I'd ever seen before. Super, super stylized. Um, yeah, like, like I you said, I'd never seen that before in a movie either. 
it blew my mind. It was funny when I was researching for this film, I was kind of looking up uh, YouTube clips of Requiem for a Dream. And I came across this one, it was a high school kid. And uh, in the description, it said, my high school theater class was asked to recreate a theme, a scene. My high school theater class was asked to recreate a scene from Requiem for a Dream. So we chose this one. And I was like, holy shit, that could have gone really wrong. Like, yes, it's a weird know. request. <laughs> Whoa. It's a great choice of a scene, though, for a high school class. Oh, you said college, right? Uh, no, it was high school. Wow. Oh my God, that's, that is intense for high school, for sure. I, you know, I, I think I watched some pretty effed up movies in um, in high school. They showed us a, a bunch of movies that I was like, whoa, like, not that A Bronx Tale is a fucked up movie, but it had a lot of um, themes in it that I was like, am I ready for this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, that, that's crazy. Yeah, that could have gone wrong very, very easily. Um, but yeah, great scene, super stylized. Um, Gia, what's your third favorite scene? Uh, so this is going to be, I think, a running theme throughout my favorites and a lot of them having to do with Sarah's character. Um, but my but this is just the combination of scenes at the very end. So like, yes, it, I have I've quite a few favorite scenes. So I had to like uh, limit them and then some of them are kind of combined. So, uh, yeah, my third my third one is the very ending scene where everything is kind of falling to shit. You know, uh, the arm the ass to ass, uh, Tyrone in prison, the hospital shock treatment of Sarah, like just like shit is going down. Shit, every, everything is just going to shit. And like kind of everybody ends up in that same kind of like fetal position. Um, and I thought just like the stylization of that was just really interesting to see because they're all feeling completely similar but completely different things like you know you see Harry in bed and he's essentially mourning the loss of his arm the loss he's probably thinking of his mom uh Marion um Tyrone is thinking of his mom and he's in prison um uh Marion's character is kind of like smiling even though considering what she just did to get the, those drugs and then you know Sarah's character just kind of like we don't even know where her mental state is at that point after having shock treatment so. Of all the four characters, who do you think ended up the worst and who ended up probably the best? I mean, if anything, I mean, I, uh, I feel like Sarah almost because, I mean, she's, I mean, what is she, is she basically a vegetable now after what she got? Like, that's, that's kind of what it seems. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's really no coming back from that. You saw, you see her two friends going to visit her and like, you, you just see how distraught they are after seeing her. I mean, they, they're, they're all in, they're all up shit's Creek. Let, let's face it. And, and it's, uh, you know, Tyrone, you know, that whole ending with him is very odd and it's strange the way it happened, but he's in prison and he's amongst a lot of racism. And it's, I mean, I, I, I've never been through that and I can't even imagine going through something like that. So that's horrific. That's a hell. Um, so I, and then of course, you know, you got, um, Harry who's lost his arm, but he's still an addict. I mean, it's the like his addiction went away. So, uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what the deal is. I mean, if anything, I think that uh, Jennifer Connelly's character might be the one who like, not that, not, not that she won anything or, but out of the four of them, maybe she's got the, you know, I mean, of course her situation probably, is fucked up. It's fucked up, I but think, at least she has a place to go probably, to and stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's what she's thinking. I think at this point she just realizes that like now she has uh, a, a means to get what, what she wants and it's probably going to become a cycle for her. And then yeah. it's going to be, a point where like it's kind of like the girl that she's going ass to ass with like she seems really into it so she's probably been there god knows how many times so i think she's, she's gonna end up being like a high-class prostitute 
some i don't know that wasn't very high class <laughs> no i said become become you gotta, you gotta climb you gotta climb the ladder in that world you know um but so my third favorite scene is actually a collection <laughs> you gotta climb the ladder in that world what's the next rung up from that? <laughs> that's a great question top rung dude you know she already met the right people so she's on her way um clearly they have they have money you know you meet you meet businessmen who are who are thirsty you know um clearly but my um my third favorite is a collection of scenes um the scenes that people probably or might forget about but i really liked the subtlety of tyrone's past with his mother um mm. because it just shows it's it's just sprinkled in there very softly like something happened with his mom we don't really know it could have just been disconnection maybe she passed away maybe he just he, he broke promises to her, but whatever it is, he has this memory of being happy as a child with his mom. And she says, like, all you have to do is love your mom or something like that. And every time he he seems to be successful or he thinks he's successful, he kind of goes back to that moment with his mom. And we see it sprinkled in a couple of times throughout the movie. And I thought it was important to kind of paint the picture of Tyrone's world and, and what he cares about the most. You know what I mean? It's like the girl he was with was almost like, you know it was just, it was an, an easy fix for him, but really what he wants is that happiness he had when he was a child. And it's, it's really sad because I think everybody has those memories as a kid where you're like, wow, what happened to my, you know, not that everyone's life is miserable, but you go, what happened to my life? Like I had these, these great memories. I wish I could get back to that feeling again of being mm -hmm. happy. And I, I really liked that, how it was sprinkled in, in the movie. I, I think I really enjoyed that part of it, even though it was very small, I think it was important to, you know, show Tyrone's backstory. Yeah. Very subtly done just the right amount of it absolutely um mike what's your uh, number two scene second favorite scene is towards the end uh and i love the i love the the seasonal title cards cutting off to act one act two act three act one being fall act one being summer act two being fall and act three being winter and so this happens kind of right in the beginning of winter right before gia's favorite collection of scenes where everybody starts losing their shit this is sort of the beginning of that when uh throughout the course of the movie ellen bernstein's character sarah starts uh she's trying to lose weight so she uh, has a doctor prescribe her diet pills, which I guess is just glorified speed. And she has to take one in the morning, one in the afternoon, like one at night or something, and then one right before bed or something. So uh, at this point in the movie, she just pops all four at once. And over the course of the movie, you see her take one and then she takes two at once because the effect gets less than three at once. And so at this point in the movie, she does four at once and things just start to go bananas in her apartment. This is when you see the fridge kind of kind of start to, to, to personify itself, start to come alive. And all of a sudden the people that she's watching on television start talking back to her. And eventually she sort of hallucinates them coming out of the TV and just making fun of her apartment and her decor. And, uh, and she's just trying to explain to them that uh, there's, you know, it's not her fault. There's nothing she can do about it. And it's just, it, 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 at this point in the movie, it just becomes more of a horror movie than a drama. And it's just absolutely absolutely terrifying it's the beginning of of sarah's descent into just this absolute madness and this is the, the onset of that but it's just it's just i feel like up to this point the movie's been a straight a straight drama but at this point it's it's as scary as any horror movie i've ever seen yeah and i like how you mentioned you know sarah's descent that's kind of what it they should be like you know titled because um it really is it, it, and, and you know what i feel you know, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna straight up say this, and we all already know this, but Ellen Burstyn knocks this fucking role out of the park, um, and she is so good in this movie. And I believe every little thing she does, um, and I love the subtlety of her 
of the way she changes her reaction. She's watching the TV and she has a smile and then her fridge jumps out even more and she puts her fingers up to her mouth and she's really, really nervous. And then she goes back to the TV again. It's, I can't explain it, but it's like, um, if, if, if being, I don't know, I, I can't explain how, how, how good her acting is there and, and the way she switches so easily. And I believe everything that she does. So that, that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say there. Yeah. yeah and- throughout, this, throughout this whole movie, Sarah is, is just uh, addicted in a sense to her TV. It's the, the, her, the TV show that she's watching is this uh, self-help guy named uh, Tappy Timmons, Juice by Tappy. And it's sort of a thir- uh, through line throughout the whole movie. And so at the end of this collection of scenes, it ends with that sort of TV emergency signal on the screen. And you just hear that beep, that ominous beep. And yep. it cuts to the next scene. It's just such a great way to end that montage. Yeah. And, and shout out to Christopher McDonald, who plays that character. Uh, sure, so yeah. good. So such a, such a fun, fun little like little character for him in this movie. I only know him as two other things, and that's Shooter McGavin and Goose from Grease Two. <laughs> He's in, well, he well he 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 plays a small part in The Sopranos. He's in a couple episodes. Oh yeah, I forgot about um, that. He's in a bunch of stuff that I could probably name off, but I can't think of them right now. But yeah, I mean everybody knows him as Shooter McGavin. Let's be honest about yes. it. Um, which, by the way, he loves everybody who comes up to him and says like Shooter McGavin things. He like really embraces it, which is awesome. That um, is great. So, what is uh, Gia your number two scene? So mine is the same as Mike's. Uh, it's the, that exact scene of uh, Sarah's descent. And like, you just, that, that combination of the pills. And like, I think, you know, the majority of us who've ever experienced, you know, having a vice, like, you know, wh- whether it's smoking cigarettes, drinking, smoking weed, you know, I think we've all kind of been there. It's like you do your, your, your one drink and you're like, okay, I'm good. And then you start to realize that when you do it more that, you know, that effect doesn't last very long. And so now you're combining things and now all of a sudden you're becoming paranoid and you'd think the answer would be to stop. But, you know, in your mind, you're, you're not fully there. So you're thinking, I need to take more to get that feeling back. Because without it, I felt miserable. With it, I felt a little better. And now it's just getting worse and worse. And that her leading up to going down to the TV studio, like, she that's the only thing she really had to live to to live for at that point like when and we'll get to that scene and I'm sure it you know it'll come back but uh you know when she's talking to Harry about like you know like what else do I have to live for like I don't have your father anymore you're not here and when he was there he was trying to steal the tv you know uh you know and but but we'll get into that but yeah I think that it's the same scene for me I thought that was such a great uh just showcase of Ellen Burstyn and her just amazingness for this character yeah yeah Absolutely. Great, great scene. And it, it probably would have made my top three, but I was trying to pick out scenes that I, that people normally wouldn't choose. Um, but I, I had a hard time with that uh, as, as is my number two. Uh, it's the sequence I call the sequence in the rain and Jennifer Connelly's character is leaving um, the guy's house. I don't know. Is it her therapist who she has sex with? Is that who it is? Yes. Um, yep. Okay. Uh, she's leaving his apartment or house. And as soon as she gets out into the rain, that, haunting haunting score comes in the it's very subtle too it's that like dun, 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 in the in the background and then she's walking in the rain and she's starting to cry and then it just goes to sarah it goes to harry it goes to tyrone and it's just showing it's like the beginning of the end the sequence and the song is so big and it's just showing everybody's like complete downfall and i think it's like you know, Harry's arm is really messed up at this point and it's looking really bad. And, you know, and then, and, and 
Sarah starting starting to become getting down to that point where it's becoming her descent. But like the music, I, if I could choose the music for one, two, and three, I would. Um, but it's the music really here that was just like, and I've heard it before. I knew the song. Um, maybe, well, obviously I didn't hear it before Requiem, but I, I obviously didn't see Requiem when it first came out. I saw it years later and I certainly saw it after Lord of the Rings. And I remember um, watching the trailer for the two towers and I was like, what the fuck is that music? And it's the same song from Requiem. They used it for the two towers and a bunch of other things. It's used. That's actually one of my miscellaneous. I'll talk about that later of all the things it was used for. But when the scene came on when she was in the rain and it started the whole montage and that song was playing, I was like, can you get better than the score at this very moment for dramatic effect? Uh, just unbelievable. Um, That's crazy. I didn't know they used that score for other things. Yeah, it's a very prominent, I guess everybody used it. I'll, I'll list them off later when I find that uh, in my miscellaneous, but yeah, um, just an incredible piece of music. But, uh, but uh, Mike, what's your uh, favorite scene? I'm pretty sure we all have the same one. My favorite scene in this entire movie and probably in any movie of 2000 was uh, Ellen Bernstein's I Love the Way I Feel in the Red Dress monologue, the one that yeah. you absolutely crushed at the beginning. <laughs> I thought she was here. I was like, holy shit, good get. <laughs> I, w- I was, I was going to practice it before we did it. And I was like, I'm just going to wing it and see if I can get the accent down. And I think some words were okay, but uh, she, she's tremendous, man. It's just so good. That was your first take? Holy shit, you yeah. got the gift. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't done theater in a while, but I'm itching to get back in. <laughs> oh, man. You need to get in touch with that high school theater class who did the uh, breakfast scene for their assignment. Seriously. <laughs> That's my favorite scene. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, just to set it up, because I know we're probably all going to talk about it, so I'll just handle the setup. So uh, Jared Leto. Leto? Leto? Leto. Leto. I think it's Leto. Leto. Yeah. I go with Leto. Jared Leto is uh, Ellen Burstyn's son and, and he comes to visit her and he notices that she's grinding her teeth. She's really spastic. She's all over the place. And he notices that she's grinding her teeth. And he's like, Ma, what, what, what's going on? And she's like, yeah, I'm taking these diet pills. I have to get on TV. I got to fit in the red dress um, so I can look great on TV for you and, and, and my husband who's no longer with her. But uh, he's like, Ma, what's the big deal with the red dress? And, uh, and so she, she tries to explain it to him and he doesn't quite get it. And then she just breaks into this absolutely heartbreaking monologue about how, uh, how uh, getting on TV is all she has left because she's old and she's lonely and she likes the way she feels in the red dress. And so uh, it's really all she has left in her life. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but having seen this movie uh, for the first time 20 years ago and now, I totally get it now. It didn't really land the first time I saw it, but now not to, not to get into a down note, but I've had dreams that have been killed. And I, 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 luckily I'm, you know, I'm not as old as Sarah and I'm not approaching the end of my life and I can do things about it now realizing it, but it's just so heartbreaking. I think everybody's been in that position and, and she nails that emotion so well. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, again, I, I consider my, I mean, obviously I'm not old by any means, but I'm 35 and like, I feel like time's gone by so fast and I'm like, man, I don't even remember what I did in my twenties. Like, what did I do? Like, what, what was my thing? Like, you know, and you're right. Like her monologue, it really hits home as you get older and you start to understand exactly what she's talking about of, even though you have people around you and things like that. Like it's so easy to feel lonely and just connected to one specific thing. And again, like you said, I love that you said that earlier because I, for some reason, this didn't even enter my mind, but yeah, she's addicted to TV too. Um, and for some reason, my, my, like, of course it makes so much sense now, but like 
addictions are, 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 are very easy and you don't even realize you're addicted to something until you have to stop and be like, wait a minute, I've done this 10 times today, whatever it is. But um, you, you're right. I mean, she, this monologue, it, and the first time I saw the movie, I think it was the same for you. Like, I, it didn't hit for me because I was too young when I saw it. And I also probably don't even remember it. Maybe it just, maybe I was on my computer or something while the movie was on too. I wasn't paying attention. But sitting there watching it, I remember I looked over to Gia after that scene and I said, she fucking killed that scene. Um, some of the finest acting I've ever seen. You had a great point and it really put it in perspective. And I've never really thought about this before. You and I are about the same age and I'm sure that we've had goals that fell through or dreams we wanted to achieve and we didn't quite uh, achieve them, but we're about the same age and we've got, you know, knock on wood, a lot of life ahead of us. And, and we can, we can reroute and, and start over and chase new dreams and new goals. But Sarah was kind of at the end of her life and this was the last thing she had. And just the fact that, it fell through is just absolutely heartbreaking. And when you think about it falling through in the way that it did, it really hits harder. Yeah. And not to be, and not to be cliche either, but I mean, I, when I was in college, I remember the sweetest thing in my, in my mind was when I was in a classroom with somebody who was in like their sixties or seventies. And I was like, God damn right. Like your life's not over. Like, don't think it is. I mean, I know people like just think age it's over, but like, I love when older people like fuck this shit. Like I'm going back to school. Like awesome. That's the coolest thing I've heard. It's going to be tough for them to get specific jobs, which sucks because of the way that things work. But it just gives me so much inspiration to know, but I know that there are some people that age that just completely give up. They're like, well, I'm this age. So that means it's over. It's like, no, it doesn't, <laughs> you know? Um, but you, like you said, think- Mike, like we can change things at our age. It's so it, at this point we can, you know? So, so basically we all have the same number one scene. I'm assuming Gia, yes. is this is it, yeah. your number one, two? Okay. Yeah. It's it, it, like we said, like Ellen Burstyn, she, she's really known for what two movies, really the exorcist in this movie, like the two top movies, I think. And, uh, and she, she kills both of them. I mean, she's, she's known for these two things, but she's she hits a home run in both movies. And she's obviously done a lot of other work. That's probably excellent, but um, yeah, she, she really steals the show in the scene. So it's an excellent, excellent scene. Let's move on to uh, a category where we talk about our least favorite thing of this movie. It doesn't have to be a scene. It could just be anything that has to do with this film that is your least favorite thing. Um, if you want, I'll start this one off just to get the ball rolling. Um, I know the book was written in 1978, and I know and, and there's no time. They don't really give you a timeline as to when it when it's taking place. It feels like modern times, although somebody said, and, and I think it was like the trivia, it was like it could have taken place in the 80s. I felt like it was modern times, like 2000 to me. And um, I didn't really, I mean, again, this is a small thing, but Tyrone is kind of talking jive in the beginning of the movie. And I'm like, nobody talks jive anymore. So I wonder if this was like a callback to the book, because clearly that was written in the 70s and jive talk was definitely a bigger thing in the 70s. So I was like, I don't know about this dialogue. Like, do I believe Tyrone saying this stuff in, in, a, in the modern age? Or is it just being, is he being cheeky? You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, but and then, uh, you know, besides that, and this goes this is going to go to later for our theme. But is there really a theme of this movie or do we think it's more of an art film? Um, I think the theme is partially about the just everybody's addiction. I think that's one of the overall themes. Oh, well, I, I get that. I get that. But like anybody can just be like, OK, well, here's here's an hour and 40 minutes of addiction. Like what's what's the deep, deep rootedness of Darren Aronofsky's vision? Like, is he you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what he was going for here. And again, it, it doesn't have to have it. It could just be like 
here's, you know, like we said before, like no country for old men, like that movie is nihilism. Bottom line. It's anything could happen anytime. Good guys don't win all the time. This movie is like, is it just characterization of these situations? And that's fine if it is. You know what I mean? I just want to know what you guys think. And then that I don't, I haven't, not, not, it's not under my worst for, for that reason, but I just wanted to grasp his message and I don't know if I got it, you know? I don't think it was an art film per se, although I think it was a very artful way of communicating the horrors of addiction. When I think art film, I mean, I think just overly pretentious. Like a tree of life, I would say, is an art film, but mm-hmm. I would say this is just a very unique and stylized way of portraying the theme of addiction, which I yeah. thought it did well. That, that's a better way to say it too. I, I like like you said. I, I don't. You're right. I don't, I don't think it's specifically an art film, um, but yeah, I guess those are like my only things that I could talk about. Um, Mike, do you have anything least favorite about this movie? I don't. I don't. I loved it top to bottom. The only thing I don't like about it is how it leaves you when it's over. But I think that could be argued as a plus too. I mean, it, it it's really effective in what it's trying to do. You know, the ending to this movie. The only way I can describe it to people is like after throwing up, just lying in bed and having the taste of vomit in your mouth still. <laughs> like, you're just like, oh, that sucked. And I still have this. Better, but you still have the taste. In <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I just have this taste in my mouth where I'm like, well, I hope that's gone soon. Let me brush my teeth 15 more times. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, Gia, do you have anything at least or worst? Um, so I, I didn't have, a, like, I literally had to like nitpick, but like, I guess my only somewhat confusion, I would say, was kind of just uh, the transition of Tyrone and Harry going from hospital to prison. Like, it just kind of, it was like a weird transition where like, I didn't see like, were they just at the hospital and just because yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like, I understand that they're drug addicts, but like, that's not like the reason why you would get arrested. It was really weird because Harry's sitting there. He's like, my arm's fucked up. The doctor's like, oh boy, I'll be right back. Let me take these vials with me. Mm-hmm. And then he, and then Tyrone, like, like there's like a sheriff or a cop in front of him. And then the next thing he's in jail. So, I mean, obviously you assume that they were like, you guys are drug dealers. We're throwing you in prison. But it seems a little bit odd. But again, I think that that was the point where like, they're in the car driving and, and Harry's like, oh, we're, 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 we're 500 miles from home, like further south. And Tyrone has this look in his face, like, fuck. So I think that ties into the ending, you know? Yeah. But um, cool. Yeah. And again, I, I agree with you, Mike, too. Like, there's really nothing lousy about this movie. It, it does exactly what it what it was meant to do. You know, I don't think Darren Aronofsky was like, ah, should have shot that. I think he, he he did everything he wanted to. It's, the camera work is amazing. Just watching um, it last night, there were no scenes in the movie that, that I thought didn't fit. Right. Exactly. Yep. I agree 100%. Um, so let's move on to our gold, silver, and bronze. Um, Mike, what is your bronze? Uh, your, your bronze. It could be an actor. It could be anybody involved in the movie. Yeah, my bronze uh, goes to composer Clint Mansell, who composed the music to this movie, which absolutely grounds this movie, which makes the movie. Uh, uh, you were talking about the soundtrack and the score a bit earlier, and uh, it's just absolutely amazing this movie wouldn't be the same without it very yep. haunting very dark uh uh I, I don't know how to describe it but clint mansell gets the bronze excellent yep and we, we might talk about him in a little while <laughs> um gia what is your bronze um so yeah mine is the combination of darren arnofsky and clint mansell because you got you guys pretty much nailed it on the head there about uh the music kind of driving this whole film and i mean darren's vision for the movie just was executed so well and you know getting all of these characters together and just 
I think a lot of the scenes, I think when I was reading the trivia, like, you know, certain scenes uh, with like Ellen Burstyn's character, like I think he had gotten like, like he should have cut at a certain point, but he literally couldn't because he was tearing up and his glasses were foggy. Like, you know, so like you can, you can tell that this whole thing was such a vision for him and he executed it perfectly. Yeah, I agree. It's almost like um, this combination of director and composer is almost as good as like um, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. Like it works so well. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. Um, mm-hmm. This, yeah. this, and, and this, this. I, I mean, I, I'm, we're gonna get to it because he, he's on my list as well. But um, my bronze uh, is uh, Darren Aronofsky, and I think that um, I don't. I have never seen Pie, unfortunately. And it's funny. I think I have the DVD where it's Requiem and Pie. It's like a double feature. Um, nice. And I, I, I have to see it. And it's funny. Part of my miscellaneous is actually um, Marlon Wayans and also Ellen Burstyn um, both took on this movie. They first said no, then they watched Pie, then they said yes. So watch that shit, man. It's yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, I got to watch Pie. Um, but Darren Aronofsky, he's just, he's a stylized director. He knows exactly what he wants and how to do it. And it's, you know, he, he shows you in an hour and 40 minutes, like this is, this is exactly what I meant to do. Watch it. And, and, and you'll get exactly what I'm talking about. So he's got no flaws in this movie. So he gets my bronze. It probably should have been higher, but there's a two or three names here that I could just jumble into gold, silver, bronze in any different way, but just happen to fall where they, where they fall. So he gets my bronze. Uh, Mike, what is your silver? Silver goes to Jared Leto. I'm not saying Jared Leto gave the strongest performance in the movie, far from it. But if you think about where he came from before this, like what was he was he was Jordan Catalano in uh, in uh, not Party of Five. What was that show? But he was kind of a uh, my so-called life. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think he was that accomplished of an actor at this point. I think he was just a pretty boy who got by on his looks. And I don't really think that he did anything of note up until this point. And he absolutely killed it in this movie. yeah yeah he's a very believable actor he nailed it and while his performance wasn't the best i I feel like it was the biggest stretch and i think he nailed it yep yep agreed absolutely um gia what's your uh what's your silver uh so my silver and again i i'm i'm notorious for having cop outs for this but um it's the combination of the those three characters of uh marion so jennifer Connolly, marlon wayans as, as tyrone and jared leto as harry yeah. because T- ties are fine i'm the original one who cheated <laughs> in like episode two of the show so ties are okay <laughs> i just think that you know what i mean like because every single person in this these characters they just had such an impact and from like completely different perspectives you know what i mean like the the sexual you know things that jennifer Connolly's character had to deal with um the the racism that tyrone had to go through um just like the 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 body transformation of harry uh just it's it, it was just so it hurt to watch but obviously, I think we're all going to kind of have a similar goal as to why, you know, as far as transitions go from where she started at the beginning towards the end. But we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, my actually, uh, my silver is actually Ellen Burstyn. And I, like I said before, she wow. could she could have easily been my she could have easily been what? <laughs> Twist ending. I didn't. I know. I didn't. I didn't see that coming. Well, either. I will explain my goal to you in, in a few seconds. But uh, Ellen Burson could have easily been my goal today. I, like I said before, it's it's just a jumble of. After I watched the movie, I wrote down my gold right away, and 
Um, but Ellen Burstyn, I, I think this is one of the best performances I've ever seen. And you must say, well, how is that not gold then? But I'll explain. Um, but I think she's tremendous. I, 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 I'm so glad she was nominated for, for an Academy Award. And we'll talk about the Oscars a little later. But she's just tremendous. I don't know what else to say about it. I, I, her monologue, the way she delivers lines, the way her eyes shift, you know she's an actor's actor. Like she really knows how to be, you know, how to, how to you know, sink into a role. I mean, she's phenomenal. She is. Yes, she is. Yeah. And uh, so... Yeah, I mean, Mike, I'm assuming I, you, you and G have the same gold. <laughs> My yes. gold is Ellen Bernstein all the way. Just everything same you here. said. But just, to, it just the, from what she is at the beginning to what she becomes at the end. At the beginning, she's so cute. She's so motherly. She's got these, these little motherly mannerisms that she nails so subtly but so perfectly. Like, she could be anybody's mom. Everybody, uh, everybody can relate. And then over the course of the movie, just slowly but gradually – she just uh, just just spirals downward into this this uh, this addiction, and, and by the end of the film, when she's just on the subway, uh, just absolutely losing her mind, it's terrifying. It's horrifying. Yeah, and it makes you kind of sad too, because like we know where she came from because we watched her, and so like when you see somebody else on the subway who seems crazy, like you don't know their backstory, you know, and they could be they could have had the same situation where like they're doped up on all kinds of shit and it's not their fault and stuff. And it's really sad. Uh, and like you said, I love the, she, she is, she's the cutest, cutest like lady in the beginning. I love her and her friends in their, in their chairs and that their whole friendships and stuff are so cute. And that one scene that no one would ever have in their top three, but like her getting her hair dyed and they're talking about how it's orange and not red. It's so cute. <laughs> uh, super, super cute. Um, but I'm GM assuming Ellen Burstyn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the comment too that you made, Mike, about how like how cute she was at the beginning. Like even the scene, like the very first time we see her where Harry's trying to take the TV and she's hiding in the closet and like she's still trusting enough to give him the key, but like still scared of him. Like she's so innocent. She's so like you know what I mean? She'd do anything for her son. She, and she still, she knows where to go pick up the TV and she just kind of lets it happen. Like she, she doesn't know any better. And then like the, all the scenes with her at the doctor's office and like thinking like, yes, this could be my own mother or this could be my grandmother, whoever. Um, and just like the doctor doesn't even look in her eyes. They don't, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so sad. And he's just like, here's another prescription. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she she's and I love when you know the the TV is like chained to the wall and she's like it's not for you, it's for the robbers. Like she's so cute. Um but so I will defend myself here gold uh without a shadow of a doubt for me is Clint Mansell and the Kronos Quartet. Um not since the movie Psycho do I think a score really depicts an entire film. And this makes the movie. Bottom line, I I think if there was another score it wouldn't have it wouldn't have hit as hard. Um it is the most uh, I can't even put it into words what this what the score is to me, but it's so intense. And like I said, it was used in the movie The Two Towers during the trailer, and it was used during the shots of Helm's Deep. Everyone's killing each other, and there's like there's a shot where Gandalf is like riding down this hill with the Roharam, and they're about to just like hit the orcs, and it's just the most beautiful shot I've ever seen in a movie. And that song's playing in the background, that da 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 da, and it's just like so amazing and. This this score does the same thing in this movie where it just makes everything so much more gritty and intense. And 
it's I've, I've I've heard a lot of great scores. I mean, I'm a musician. I love music more than anything in the world. So I'm always listening for music, but you don't really have to dig deep and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I have to go back and listen to that score. No, no, no. I know this fucking score because it is a plus. Um, it really is. And I that, little- yeah. I get the Lord of the Rings thing, but I don't like it. I think that's sacrilege. I think that score belongs to this movie and no other movie. Right, right. It was just, I, I think they were looking for like, look, what's an intense song we could use for the trailer? And, you know, it, it was maybe a cop out there. They could have found something else, but it's, it's so you- weird that that's the connection between Requiem to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And, and again, it's used for, I mean, let me, let me pull it up right now because I actually do have a list. It's a part of my miscellaneous. Um, do, 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 do. Uh, so it's called the Lux Aterna. So it says the Lux Eternal portion of the music composed by Clint Mansell for Requiem for a Dream soundtrack has often been used since in many other contexts, such as trailers for other films, including Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, The Da Vinci Code, I Am Legend, Man on Fire, Sunshine, soundtracks for video games, Total Minor Forge, Assassin's Creed, and for TV programs, advertisements. Uh, sports teams have it when they come out, Notre Dame, Missouri State University, the Boston Celtics, Virginia Commonwealth University, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a very intense score, and, and I see why they they used it. But that, that's the only thing I think could have edged out Ellen Burstyn's performances. This this soundtrack that I think is so unbelievable. I'm sorry. Well, I guess it's a score. It's so effective that I almost can't touch anything else besides it for gold. So that's my defense. Wow. You sold me. I'll give you that. <laughs> um, Requiem, for a, Requiem for a Dream score. First purchase I ever made on Amazon.com. Wow. Wow. for a dream trivia for you there you're like driving your car it's the most intense car out of your life (laughs) i did i'm one of those guys i don't know if you guys do this but do you like hear the uh movie scores in your head sometimes like when you're doing things in life that are parallel to things from that movie every time i open the refrigerator the buff the buffet scene and hook (laughs) (laughs) john williams john williams brilliant score of the of the of the looking at this you're looking at the sun and you hear that uh, John Williams score from Star Wars when Luke is out looking at the sun. Just shit like that, man. Yeah, and I, I actually, you know, reading The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, like I would listen to the soundtrack over and over and over again while I was reading the books just to give it more intensity. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. For sure. I, I love I love uh, movie scores. I think that they're not talked. I want to do a podcast just talking about movie scores. Uh, <laughs> but Very interesting podcast let's get to the uh the always favorite category of the podcast and that is the recasting um so i just did our main four i did sarah harry marion and tyrone did you guys have anybody else different i did those four and tappy timmons oh excellent okay so g and i don't have a tappy timmons so who is your tappy timmons all right can i do do i do my whole uh, if, if you want to usually we go back and forth like we'll do all the sarahs but if you feel like yours has to be grouped together then go ahead Nope, nope. I'll do my Tappy Timmons. But before I do, I want to say that I heard about your recast segment and I was a little hesitant because I think this movie is perfectly cast and mm-hmm. it would be sacrilegious to try to recast it. But then I got into it and I have to say that my recasting from T to B is perfect. Is Excellent. Perfect. And, and just, like, so you, just so you know, like I say this every time to him, I'm always like, oh, I have to recast this. It's only if there was a remake. You know what I mean? Right. So like... 
you know, we did the Godfather and, and Rick told me at that time that it was like the, one of the best recasts he'd ever heard. But I'm like, who the fuck am I going to replace with Marlon Brando? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's stupid. Exactly. It's actually dumb to do it, but it's so much fun. That's why we do it. It is so much fun. And I'm here to say that my recasting of Requiem for a Dream is perfect. I'm but so excited. There's a stipulation. There is a stipulation. Some of the people that I've recasted have sort of aged out of it. So you have to imagine them at the age of their character. Okay, my- that, that works. But that doesn't apply to my Tappy Tibbins. Uh, and every time I say a name, it's like when Mel Gibson turned around that pair of aces in Maverick. Like, it's such an amazing reveal. Every one of these names is just... So- <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. So uh, my Tappy Timmons, Bob Odenkirk. Love it. <sighs> Fucking... I- fucking love it so far you are you are 10 for 10 <laughs> and, and and for us we had literally just finished better call Saul so to freshen our memories and you know for- what's funny while we were watching requiem uh we were watching it on like the peacock app or whatever and like we kept getting commercials and it kept showing better call Saul. it was the first commercial after every it was wow. st- i was we were getting so upset we have the dvd we couldn't find it so we had to watch it on peacock and it was but, commercials. but now that you say that as oh my god that that would literally work perfectly, perfectly. so I, i'm excited to hear everybody else yep all right uh so let's jump to tyrone um i will go i'll take that one first I kind of think this is a cop-out for me because I use him so frequently because I think he is just one of the best actors going nowadays and he's super, super successful. And I've seen him play super emotional. I've seen him play super intense. Um, and that is Michael B. Jordan. And uh, I, I, I've seen him in like The Wire. He's in the Creed movies. He does action. He does emotional. He's just like such a great actor. I think he could absolutely knock this one out of the park. So that's my Tyrone. Uh, Gia, who's your Tyrone? Uh, I chose somebody who I think it does really great with comedic roles, uh, as well as, you know, he's into music and, you know, I, I'm, I can see the drama. So I chose Donald Glover. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I think that he's shown himself as somebody who can like really act and everything. Yeah. And like you said, he does a lot of comedy well and he does serious well. So I think mm-hmm. that I think people who are like, oh, musicians should become actors or actors should become musicians. Like it's possible. Donald Glover's proof of that. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, what is yeah. your uh, who's your Tyrone? Yeah. When you look at the original Tyrone is Marlon Wayans. He come from he came from a, a comedic background as well. I think he was on right. Living Color. He was on. Uh, on uh, uh what's the show where he was like a baby but he was like i don't know but anyway you got a comedic actor taking a dramatic turn which he absolutely nailed and so for my recasting i wanted to find a an actor who had a similar uh comedy background and decided to take a dramatic turn and i think he could nail it just like marlon waynes did i too have donald glover awesome <laughs> yeah i i just totally see it you know and, and like you said marlon waynes like after this movie, this movie came out in 2000. I mean, after that, he was still doing comedy. He was doing like scary movie and all those things. And I wish I kind of, I mean, the white chicks, like I kind of wish he kept doing the dramatic stuff because he was really great. Um, And whenever you said uh, your, your, your Tyrone was really good though. Michael B. Jordan. That's a really Mm -hmm. good call. Yeah. I think the role might be too small for him now, (laughs) but this is, this is completely, this is our fantasy football. So Mm -hmm. But um okay uh so I will go next I will do my Marion um she was actually the hardest for me I think because there's a lot of different actresses you could choose but I went with um uh, an actress who's actually in the next movie we're gonna do uh, next week uh, G and that's the, the movie is the witch uh, I picked Anya Taylor Joy and uh-huh. I think she's 
has this kind of like vixen-esque thing about her and she's i think she was in the most recent couple of seasons of peaky blinders um she does a lot of movies now where she's just like this kind of sassy like hot girl or whatever and i could just see she plays emotional really well too and i could just I, the one thing I, I thought of was like which actress out there can i picture with like just completely wet eyeliner like just dripping down her face <laughs> very well like and her just like showing emotion on her face so easily and, and she was one of the actors I, I chose and i think there's a bunch that could could fill this role but she's just the one that i thought of so uh yeah Gia, i don't know who, i don't know who that is i just googled it i could totally see that yeah she's the lead the lead in the movie the witch and i'm a huge a24 uh freak i love those movies they're all oh, weird yeah. crazy creepy weird movies and she's in a bunch of things now and i think that she's one of those up-and-coming actresses now where like she's just getting a lot of large roles um but I could totally see. I mean, I had a list of actresses here that I could have used. Um, but who would who do you have, Gia? I have Juno Temple. Uh, you know, we just recently saw her in The Offer. Um, but I've known her from a bunch of different roles. Um, she was in, oh God, what's the one with Keira Knightley? I can't even think. Atonement when she was younger. And I think everything I've seen her in, she's nailed. So I think she would be great in this role. You know, I actually would feel really rotten to see her, you know, Temple in those crazy scenes at the end. Um, <laughs> she has, cause she has a face that's so cute and like, she's adorable. And like, it would almost feel like, I don't know, a family member like that happening to or something like that. She just has that, that look about her. Well, like she's like the girl next door and she's getting like, you know, all that crazy. It's just, I, mean, I, th it, I think your version of the movie you know, would be your, your version of the movie would be even sadder, I think. But you know what, if you, if you knew Jennifer Connelly, then the thing that you probably saw her in before was uh, what the is labyrinth. It? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. So like you see her in Labyrinth and then all of a sudden she's going ass to ass. So, I mean, do you know Temple played like a porn star? You know what? You know what? Fuck it. Fuck it. My Marion's David Bowie. <laughs> that I'd love. I really, I really hope ass to ass wasn't the audition scene for this role. <laughs> I really she's hope like, they got to do a monologue or something. She's like, she's like, you guys are joking. You're like, no, no, no. We want you to film it actually the way it would be in real life right now. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. I'm curious to hear Mike's. Uh, Darren, Ar Darren Aronofsky's like, I have a wet dildo in my in my drawer right now. She's like, <laughs> please no. <laughs> All right, yeah, Mike, who is your uh, Marion? This was the first one that came to me. I think there's only one correct answer for this, and that's Emma Stone. Oh, <sighs> I, I I kind of have. An, I I like Emma Stone. I I like her. I have a little bit of an issue with her, but I do like her. What's your What's issue with issue? Emma Stone? She, I don't know. She came off as really pretentious to me in an interview where she, I think it was like 2014. And she was, I think it was like, like around that time. And, and somebody was like, oh, like, so have you been watching like TV shows, whatever? You Are you watching Game of Thrones? And she's like, what the fuck is Game of Thrones? And I was like, bitch, yeah. this is 2014. It's the midst of season four. You're a fucking, you're a fucking liar. <laughs> First of all, she's an actress. She's got a life of her own, okay? She's, yeah, but she, she's upsetting a lot of people, including me, who has Game of Thrones <laughs> tattoos on him. All right, you know? well, get your Game of Thrones dildo out of your ass and, <laughs> and realize I that wish, I wish. she would be great in this role. I, I, I really like That's a great choice, Mike. Thank you. I like well, it. I like it. Thank you so much. And while I'm at it, I'm going to go ahead and walk back my perfect uh, recast. My other two aren't that great. But... Uh, <laughs> My first, three, my first three I was feeling really good about. My last two aren't that great, but uh, I'd say they're seven out of ten. See, I think I think my Sarah and Harry are better than my Marion and Tyrone. Really? Yeah, All I right. think so. Um, so my let's let's do Harry next. I think Sarah is like the ultimate. Um, yeah. My Harry is. Uh, I went with one actor and I thought it was really good, and then I thought of this actor, and this actor that I'm about to tell you is the one that Darren Aronofsky really wanted. 
And really? for some reason, it doesn't say me in the trivia. It doesn't tell you why, because this actor is not a household name, but he's a fantastic character actor. And that is Giovanni Rubisi. Wow. Oh, my God. I totally see that. Yeah. I mean, if you think of movies like Boiler Room and, and things like that, he's so good as a lead actor. And he's he just has this face about him that he's always in distress. <laughs> Like a sad puppy. He's a sad, pu- like a sad puppy. He was actually my Fredo in The Godfather, and, and we, we that was from me. You're welcome. Yeah, that was actually that was your idea. Um, but I love him so much. I love everything I've ever seen him in. Mike, so we, Mike, we just recently watched a show called The Offer, and it's based on it's, it's basically the real life events of the filming of The Godfather. It's a fantastic miniseries. It's only ten episodes, and Giovanni Ribisi plays uh, Joe Colombo, the mob boss, and he's fan fucking tastic. He's great. So Holy I, shit, I, that's a good pick, man. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, I thought of it maybe like 15 minutes before the episode aired, this, we, we recorded this. So, um, wow. but uh, Gia, who, yeah, who's your Harry, Gia? Um, so I, the, the majority, the people that I chose kind of, I've all chosen from this. So if I were to cast it today. So the person that I chose, I, the more recent things that I've seen this person in, I think he's amazing. Um, you know, he's got a family full of actors, but I think he's at that, he's still young enough where, you know, he has so many big roles ahead of him and that's Rory Culkin. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just based on, um, Lords of chaos, Lords of chaos, Mike, have you seen that? No. Who did you say? Rory McCulkin? Rory. So Rory Rory Culkin. The, the younger oh, brother okay. of McCulkin. Yeah, the, the younger of the three who were involved in in, in, in shows oh, and movies. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah R- Rory's yeah. great. I mean, I think Rory's not quite as well-known as Kieran because Kieran's killing it right now in succession. Yeah. But Rory, um, he was in a movie called Lords of Chaos, which is about the about the uh, black metal band um, Mayhem from like the 80s. And Rory knocks it out of the fucking park. So if anyone listening right now has not seen Lords of Chaos, go on to Hulu, check that. It's a biopic about the band Mayhem and it is fucked up. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's it called? Lords of Chaos. Lords of chaos. Right. Yeah, it's it's it, Mayhem's a really like they're like the first black metal band, and they're out of Norway, and it, everybody just like a lot of the band members die and they like kill each other and shit. It's fucked up. Um, but I remember being introduced to Rory in the movie Signs. Oh like, yeah, that so movie good. with Mel Gibson, and he plays the little boy who like can who like just has these feelings about things. And even then, when he was a little boy, I was like, he's gonna he's definitely got some great acting chops. I'm not gonna lie, I'm I love Macaulay Culkin as a kid, but I think Cameron and Rory are starting to slowly surpass him as far as like talent. I think Macaulay Culkin is like the most popular child actor of all time, but I don't yeah. think he ever really was able to show his acting chops because he stopped acting like when he was a teenager. Right. Um, so, but Karen and Rory are taking the reins and they're killing it right now. It's um, kind of the, uh, the, the Olsen kind of thing. Mary-Kate and Ashley took the back seat, and now Elizabeth is like, Elizabeth Olsen's talk. killing it. Yeah. Yep. Um, excellent. Um, and, uh, so Mike, who's your, uh, who's your Harry? Yeah. I got to humbly admit that both of your picks are much better than mine. And, uh, from this point on, my list is going to take a downward spiral, no. much like Ellen Burstyn did from the beginning of the <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was trying to go for a, a similar Jared Leto-y situation where you've got a really good-looking dude who steps into an out-of-character role. Uh, and so my pick is Sebastian Stan, the I love soldier. It. I, oh, love yeah. it. I love it. Yep. I love it. You, I love it. You skinny him up. You take an Avenger. You skinny him up. You heroin addict him up. Toss him in this movie. I think he'd nail it. Didn't he? I think he, I think he recently played like... Um... Who's that? Tommy Rock? Lee. Tommy Lee. I mean, Tommy yeah, Lee. He, he's yeah, totally, yeah. 
totally a versatile actor. I think while we were we actually, I, Jira and I, 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 not that I made you do this, but she agreed to watch all of the Marvel movies in order with me in a row. <laughs> um, and uh, our heads are mush now. But I think while we were watching them, I, I told you, I was like, I think Sebastian Stan is going to be like one of those actors that becomes extremely versatile and not known for his role in Marvel. So, um, yeah, you know I love it. I love that. You know what? I'm walking back my walk back. I'm back on board with my recast. I'm Good. back on board. <laughs> yep. I think I'm really going to bring it home. It's been it's been really it's been topsy turvy. <laughs> I was really leaning into uh, I was really leaning into Emma Stone. I thought that was my ace in the hole, but I didn't get the ovation that I thought I was going to get for that. But now I, I'm back. I thought that was a great choice. So and and I like it. I like it. All right. All right. Um. So. Let's do it. Let's do it. Sarah Goldfarb. A um, lot of older actresses you could go for this. I'm thinking about one who is an absolute fucking chameleon. Most people don't even know what movie she's in sometimes because she's in disguise and she's not in the credits list because she's that fucking good of an actress. And that is Glenn Close. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, just just based on her performance in Hook, when she's the pirate that nobody knows she's the pirate and she goes, yeah. And then like, I think she's in a new movie now where she's like, I don't know what movie it is, but I keep seeing pictures of her and she's like extremely decrepit looking and she's got so much makeup on, but she like, she's just so good at be, being a chameleon and stuff. And she, she, she has the acting chops to completely nail this. So. Mm -hmm. I think uh, so. I think she was terrifying. Do you guys remember Fatal Attraction from the 80s? It's an 80s movie. I don't think I saw it. Okay, Fatal Attraction is a movie that I'm not going to get into it, but Glenn Close is in it and she's absolutely bananas. She's like a stalker ex-wife. But uh, yeah, 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 just a phenomenal. I think she might have been nominated for something in that, but but I don't know. But uh, that's a great pick. She's great. I also love her in uh, The World According to Garp. Oh, Robin she's Williams. that's one of yeah, Rob Williams' earliest movies. Great, great. So, yeah. Um, Gia, who do you have for uh, for Sarah? Uh, so the person that I chose uh, the, from the previous roles that I've seen her in, you know, I can see her being cute and happy. I've seen her go pretty apeshit and crazy. Um, and that is uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know, you see her in as Catwoman and she's just kind of like losing her shit. I've seen her in, um, you know, uh, I am Sam where like, you can see her as a mother. She's starting to lose it a little bit, but like, and she's I, at I least, she's at least 60 now. She has to be. So like, Oh yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She's That's a great, she's a great actress. She, she has that like fidgety, fidgety thing that I think would work in the Sarah Goldfarb character type. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think, I think she would nail it. Yeah, absolutely. Great pick. I feel like I'm having a hard time visualizing uh, Michelle Pfeiffer going there, though. I don't know yeah. if she can go all in. If she can uh, go all in, like Ellen I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. Have you seen her in? Not that she goes berserk, but she she does have her moments in Scarface towards the end. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She has that meltdown of like just going crazy, and then Al Pacino, of course, steals every scene that he's in. So it's hard to remember <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer. But <laughs> um, I would love to see her in the role. I would love to see her take on it. <laughs> uh, I think I think she like she goes berserk at the restaurant after Al Pacino's like talking to Manny and he's like she's like her her womb is so polluted man <laughs> <laughs> and she just goes fucking nuts but she does go there on a few things I gotta remember what other things she does it in but um, anyways Mike what's your uh, what's your Sarah Kathy Bates Kathy Bates <laughs> oh, I, man. I love Kathy Bates I love it I, think I love she it can nail it I think she can nail it from the sweet loving mother all the way down to the to the to the pilled out, uh, just riding the subway. 
she's one of those actresses where like she doesn't need auditions you just cast her and that's it <laughs> right, yeah. right. you know what i mean you're like kathy bates you're gonna be no problem no problem like like she would nail it yeah absolutely i, think I love kathy bates from from uh misery all the way to the water boy i love kathy bates. <laughs> i forgot about water boy <laughs> <laughs> Misery yeah. her uh, misery was her requiem for a dream recast audition for me. And that's what that's what got her. That, that's awesome. I don't know. I don't know why. Please slap me in the face. But the one role I keep thinking about her in. People are like, "What are you talking about?" Do you remember her in Rat Race when she's like the crazy squirrel lady? <laughs> oh my no, god, that tiny that. little from with it, but I never saw it. Yeah, she just she's in like the movie for maybe I don't know a minute and a half. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, Kathy Bates is tremendous. Uh, so for miscellaneous, anyone have any fun facts we can talk about? No. You, uh, you mentioned Requiem some of them for, already. Yeah, Requiem for a Dream score, I think, is the first. That was the first purchase I ever made. In I think I have a fun fact. Yeah, I got a couple of things. Uh, I will read them quickly. Um, during Ellen Burstyn's impassioned monologue about how it feels to be old, cinematographer Matthew Libetic... Le- 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 Matthew L. accidentally let the camera drift off target. When director Darren Aronofsky called cut and confronted him about it, he realized the reason the cinematographer had left the camera adrift is because he was crying during the take and fogged up the camera's eyepiece. This was the take used in the final print. Oh, wow. I thought that was really, really touching just to know that like to see her perform that monologue right behind a camera I could see why he would cry. Like she, she nails it. I mean, it, it's a very emotional monologue, and um, makes you believe it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's yeah, see here. Uh, Jared Leto stated in an interview with Rolling Stone that he would shoot up water while hanging around real life junkies, and he said shooting up anything was intense, and he would never do it again. What? Yeah. I don't know why he would. I was shooting up that? water, not fatal. Doesn't I, I, it? it I don't know. I mean, it, it, I'm assuming because it's just water, but I mean, it just seemed fucked up. Doing anything. I'm calling bullshit, Jared. I'm taking back my silver medal. <laughs> <laughs> um, that kind of reminds me of my brother thinking he was hysterical once. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, I think my mom had been like baking or something and there was just a, a bunch of sugar out and he literally made a line and then went to snort said sugar actual sugar and then literally got an immediate headache and then a, a nosebleed so oh <laughs> he was like never never doing that again and i'm like yeah i don't know why you did it the first time you're an idiot <laughs> that's awesome do you have any fun facts i don't that's okay. I do have- you said all of mine already i do have a fun fact i just remember i just very recently read the book Wec- oh. hold on i'm gonna start over Wequiem. Wequiem. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a fun fact. I just recently read the book for Requiem for a Dream, and the book has absolutely zero punctuation. No punctuation in the book whatsoever. Really? That is so bizarre. Yeah. So no, no periods? No nothing? No periods, no, no quotation marks. I believe there might be periods, but there's no quotation marks or paragraph breaks whenever, whenever anybody speaks. So oh, you never know. So I think there's like a dash. If I remember correctly, there might be a dash to let you know that somebody's talking here. But then there's just a period and then it goes into the next sentence, which may or may not be somebody talking. So, wow, that's so weird. That's that's an interesting way to write something. Maybe that's why Darren Aronofsky was like, I have to stylize this movie since the book was so stylized. Oh, yeah, Um, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. But um, the next is our fantasy Oscars. And we'll we'll go through these quickly. Um, This was only nominated for one Oscar, but um, 
because we kind of do a recast and it's like a fantasy recast, I like doing fantasy Oscars. And I want to just see if we think that anybody should have, should have been nominated that's not. Uh, for instance, uh, this movie did come out in 2000 and the best picture was won by Gladiator. Um, I, I know why Gladiator won. It makes sense. But the other nominees were Chocolate, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Aaron Brockovich, and Traffic. Do we think Requiem deserves a spot here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, not uh, in the film. No. Sorry. You can edit this out. Sorry. <laughs> uh, do, do, do we think that the Requiem for a Dream belongs in, in the best picture category? I don't think it does. And I think it goes back to what Joe Rogan said about Pulp Fiction. I think Pulp Fiction really was groundbreaking and, and game changing. And I think for what Requiem for a Dream did, uh, it did it in, in an amazing way. But I don't think it was enough to put it in a, in a, in a best film of the year category. I, you know, I don't know if I, I agree with you, but I, I do think the movie takes chances and there's not a lot of movies that I can really, I mean, I can maybe count them out on, on my hand, but not too many movies that really just made me feel completely empty after a movie. I mean, there, there's those like horror movies where you watch them and they're like, it ends abruptly and you're like, I can't fucking believe that was the ending. Fuck this movie um, mm -hmm. or things like that. But this movie was not legitimately a horror movie, but it, it, it was a drama and it ended on such a low note that um, I think, I, th I just think Darren took a lot of chances with this. And I think that like, for instance, I'm not going to shit on Aaron Brockovich, but I don't know if that movie takes the chances that this one does. See, you know what though? Like, I think Aaron Brockovich is a great movie. Like the story, cause it's based on a true story. And if you haven't already seen it, it's a great movie and you should watch it. But like something like Chocolat, like, and this is from somebody who had like an obsession with Johnny Depp before everybody was like Johnny Depp. Um, but like the story is like, it's a French woman and her young daughter open up a chocolate shop in, you know, in a small remote village. And like, there's things that happen, but yes, but like, Requiem, I think, could absolutely take the place of that. I, I do too. I think it belongs here, but I'm also okay with it not being on here just because it's like, I feel like Requiem was like, fuck you. I don't need a nomination yeah, to, no, yeah, to show sure. you how good of a movie I am. Because like, we know, we, we know for a fact, like back then, like before 2012, only five movies were being nominated. Now there's like fucking 10. Um, but I think, I think if this was like, if this movie came out uh, or if, if, if back in 2000, there were like 10 options for that, I think Requiem should be on there. If there were 10 options, it should absolutely be there. I distinctly <laughs> remember this year, I was a huge traffic guy. And I think that's kind of like a hot take because I don't think a lot of people like traffic, but I distinctly remember feeling like traffic got snubbed for the best film. <laughs> I feel like every year I'm disappointed with any award show. So I just, I, I actually, when I see like lists of the Grammys, I literally laugh out loud. I'm like, this can't be real. <laughs> no, get me started about 1999 when Shakespeare in Love beat out uh, Thin Red Line. Don't even get me started. I, I, I mean, it's all about you know, it, you know, it's it's that's all bullshit. But <laughs> um, best director uh, was won by Steven Soderbergh with Traffic. So yeah, they, they, at least you got to win for that. Um, uh, Stephen Daldry for Billy Elliot, Ang Lee for Crouching Tiger, Hidden, Hidden Dragon, Steven Soderbergh for Aaron Brockovich. What the fuck, Soderbergh two? Now, I'll tell you what, I would put Darren Aronofsky in, uh, in the uh, running for Best Director. I don't know if Best Film, but uh, Best Director. Yeah, yeah. The, the last one is Ridley Scott. I think Ridley Scott needs to be there for Gladiator for sure. But I don't think Steven Soderbergh needs to be in there twice. So fuck off, Steven, for Aaron Brockovich. We're putting in, uh, we're putting in Darren Aronofsky. Um, that's just the way it's going to be. Um, and no, Gia, oh, okay. Gia, I've, Gia, I've never seen Aaron Brockovich, so I don't know. But I know that Julia Roberts won... Uh, best actress for that 
do you think she deserved it over Ellen Bernstein? Mm, yeah, that, that's really hard to say because they're completely different characters. Because Erin Brockovich is essentially she's playing like a a lower like kind of po I wouldn't say poverty level, but like single mom, uh, middle class, uh, you know. And she essentially becomes I don't know if I would say a, a lawyer, but she like helps defend her entire county where like the water supply is bad. And like all of these companies, like everybody in her town is essentially getting like different forms of cancer. Um, and she's, she, it, there's like a really great scene too, where like she's against the, like the, essentially like the water company and they're like bringing up different uh, people who have issues. And then she's like, well, which one are you talking about? And then she's just like, oh, uh, number five, four, three. And then she like immediately knows who she's talking, like they're talking about. She's like, and that's so-and-so and her daughter and whatever. And they got uh, like sickle cell, like whatever from their pool or whatever it is but like you, the, the movie itself was amazing but I think Ellen Burstyn's version of this character I think I think she probably deserved the I don't think Julia Roberts should be nominated for anything because I don't think she's a good actress bottom line you haven't seen enough of her to say have you before. seen Hook she was miscast okay so what one out of however many but Julia Roberts Aaron when she smiles it makes me ill oh shut up <laughs> All right, so I, you know. I, I think that Ellen Burstyn, if she doesn't win here, she definitely deserves the nomination. So I think we can all agree on that. Yes, um, absolutely. But do I we think book was going to come up so much in a Requiem for a Dream podcast? What, what was brought up? <laughs> I didn't think Hook was going to come up so much. <laughs> I bring up I bring up Hook a lot for every episode. I was going to yeah. say, I'm like, the more you get to know us, we talk about Hook quite a bit, Hook. actually. <laughs> it's my, my childhood movie. Um, do so, we think, so for Best Actor, do we think, um, do we think... Uh, Jared Leto belongs here. I don't think he does. Um, Russell Russell Crowe wins for Gladiator. Uh, then uh, nominations: Javier Bardem for Before Night Falls, Tom Hanks for Castaway, Ed Harris for Pollock, Jeffrey Rush for Quills. Yeah, he doesn't belong here. Yeah, no. Uh, good good performance, but not but not worthy. Um, do we think there's a best supporting actor here for either Jennifer Connelly or um, Tyrone uh, for for Marlon Wayans? Uh, I don't think either of them belong here either for best supporting actor or best supporting actress. Um, no, Benicio del Toro won it, and I just think he crushed it. And he was so, that was sort of his coming out was traffic. I think is sort of introduced Benicio del Toro to the world. I thought he was amazing in traffic. Yep, yep. And uh, actually, wow, like traffic. Am I? Am I? A, I I've actually, I've never, I've actually I never, I've never I seen it. Bad. I, I know. I we that's another one we have to add to the list. I was gonna say, Mike, maybe we can add that to our one that we do with you again. Yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. Awesome, because yes. I've never seen it, and I'd, it'll be a lot of fun for you to hear our takes in a movie we had like just seen the night before for the first time. Um, yeah, but uh, one thing I want to mention is Best Supporting Actress, uh, Kate Hudson and Frances McDormand both get nominated for Almost Famous. Pretty crazy. Oh. Yeah, um, I saw that. Frances McDormand was so good in that movie. She She's one of those actors people forget about, but you're, every time you oh, watch man. a movie, yeah, I she's so good. She would have been a good... I thought of her. I thought of her, too. I, yep. Yes. Oh shit! I thought of her and oh, and uh, I thought of uh, Frances McDormand. And I thought of the winner of this year for best supporting actress. I thought of Marsha Gay Harden. Um, she actually won for Pollock. I thought of her too. I use her a lot, but um, but yeah, that's only the one nomination. Um, but I think it's well deserved. Uh, so excellent for Ellen Burstyn. Um, what are we eating with this movie? Movies on in front of us. What what food are we eating with this? <sighs> One hard-boiled egg, one grapefruit, and a cup of black coffee. <laughs> Great. That's it. That's it. I was going to say the purple pill followed by the green pill followed by the orange pill. <laughs> you guys are generous. I was going to say just eat some heroin. 
<laughs> I have a little water. I don't know what that. I don't know what that would ha- like. What that would do to your body if you ate it, but uh, that I mean, diet too that she had. Like I, I'm so. Fam- I remember that diet. Like that wasn't just like for the movie. Like that was an actual thing. Like the half grapefruit, the hard boiled egg, and a black cup of coffee. Like it's the the way that people think that that's how we need to eat. It's so sad. Yeah, it, so it sucks. Yeah, I remember. I remember the whole grapefruit diet phase that happened like back then too. It was like a whole big thing, and then it just became Atkins. It was like just get rid of the grapefruit, and it's just Atkins now. <laughs> um, <laughs> just basically, just eat a low carb diet, and you'll lose tons of fucking weight. That's the answer. But I then my dad was on the Atkins, and every day he would just shovel eggs and bacon and meat into his face, and he lost like thirty pounds. I don't understand. It's how. amazing. And there's no because there's no carbohydrates. The only problem with the diet is that, and I, I I was on it for a period of time. I did lose a lot of weight, but as soon as you start eating bread and carbs again, you just gain it all back super fast. Oh, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't keep the weight off unless you just become a person. <laughs> become a person who just eats no carbs, which is impossible unless you're like a crazy keto dude. Um, mm-hmm. But um, so next category is uh, the the most important one, and that's when I put thirty seconds on the clock for Gia, and she tells us why Requiem for a Dream is the greatest movie of all time. And it's funny because I never ever prepare for this ever. I'm always like, oh shit. I, I good. That's the, even better. Yeah, I don't want you to be prepared. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Go. All right. So, I mean, you've got some of the best actors. You got Ellen Burstyn playing this amazing character, and she literally makes you believe in everything that she's doing. You've got Jared Leto, and the last time you saw him was in My So-Called Life, but now here he is, and he's a drug addict. You got Marlon Wayans, who we know all from comedy, but he can do drama, too. And Jennifer Conley, she's not a little girl anymore. She's going ass to ass. This movie is fucking nuts. If you want to have a night that you'll never forget, watch Requiem for a Dream. Time! 30 seconds on the dot. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I am sweating. The song that, I don't use a timer. I just go on Spotify, and I just thought this was funny. The song that I had playing on on silent was "One Song Glory" from Rent. <laughs> oh, which, which I by the which by the way, the character who's singing that, Adam Pascal, has AIDS because he was shooting up heroin. So I did not ah. mean I did not mean for that to happen. Um, so uh, let's talk. And now we already talked about this, but ultimately the theme of the movie, and I think that we kind of already discussed this, but I don't necessarily think that all movies need a direct theme. Um, but I, I, in my head, I like to grade movies like a, a plus a minus B, whatever. I think this movie's a solid a, um, I didn't give it an a plus just because I, I, it's hard for me to give movies perfect scores. Um, although I do think this movie in itself is perfect because there's really no flaws in it, but I, I still think that there's something deeper here that Darren wants to say. And I don't know if I'm missing the obvious, but what do, what do you guys think? Do you think there's an ultimate theme here? The short answer is no, I don't, I don't think so. I think that he was just trying to uh, visually portray the horrors of addiction. And I, and I thought he nailed it. I thought he did it in a relatively um, different, unique, stylish way. But, but I do think that was the underlying theme. I think that Requiem for a Dream is more of a horror movie than a drama. I think it was scarier or as scary as any horror movie I've ever seen. And um, but having said that, I think it was just a very terrifying way of of depicting uh, addiction. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was pretty evident throughout. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I really enjoyed watching this movie again. I likely won't watch it for another fifteen years, um, <laughs> based on how it makes me feel. But I do think it's one of those movies that. 
you know, you know, I, I've never done heroin and I know that people who have taken the drug and I know that, you know, obviously we, we've seen that like when you're not taking it, you get strung out and you, you sweat and you vomit and you, you're very, very sick. And I think that this movie almost depicts that in the way it's filmed of like, it's, this movie feels like it's a little strung out, if that makes sense. And I think that Darren nailed it. He just nailed the feeling and the scope of what it is to be um, an addict. And, and I think the this movie is probably the best movie I've seen about this subject. It really depicts what it, what it is and, and what it looks like and the, and the griminess of it. And if, if I could th- think of a song that depicts the feeling, and again, I've never done it. So, you know, you can't take my, you take my for a grain of salt, but the song heroin by the velvet underground, uh, Lou Reed, I think really gets that feeling down pretty well. Uh, it's kind of scary, but um, props to Darren Aronofsky props for this movie. And I'm glad for all of its success. Um, but let's talk about what's coming up. Uh, that was Requiem for a Dream. Really had fun doing this one. Um, so October is among us. Uh, and I, you know, every October, I like to do horror movies, obviously. Uh, I picked four. I have some guests coming on. These are going to be a lot of fun. So the four that I have for October are as follows. I have The Witch, Saw, Hereditary, and Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Nice. Um, so I'm pumped about doing those. I just wanted to get a variety. Um, and uh, so those should be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm thankful for everyone listening to the show. Mike, you were awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I can't wait to do the next one with you. Um, we'll chat offline to see which one we're doing next with you. Because um, I know you, you picked a couple that are going to be exciting. Um, so yeah, I you know, appreciate you coming on, Mike. Any, 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 last, any last words or summaries about this? Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Yeah, we, we did too. And uh, I think uh, I think this is going to be a, a great uh, partnership on here. The next time we have Mike on, I know we're going to get a lot of listeners because you did an awesome job. I like hearing you. I like hearing you speak, Mike. Oh, thank you. Back <laughs> at you, man. I like your Ellen Burstyn impression. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck that was. Maybe maybe it was. A, I think I think it, I think if anything, it was a double. I hit a double. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite a home run or a triple, but it was fun. Um, but anyways, thanks for everyone for listening to our podcast. This is the greatest movie of all time podcast. I have been your co-host, of course, Wreck the Big Dekboski. And I have been Gia, the Mrs. Dekboski. Don't do drugs, kids. <laughs>